We are kicking off our summer series on the fruit of the Spirit. Let's say this together. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's such a well-known passage, we probably have to deconstruct some ideas about it before we begin to construct Paul's intent in it. Some would see them as nine character qualities for you to target in your faith, like there's something you can achieve or accomplish. Some would see them as the ultimate ideal, but frankly, unattainable. I mean, who, who could be that kind of person? That is an amazing person. And what we're going to find out is that it is God's desire and intent, and in fact, he has made provision for you and I to become that person. In fact, this is what people ought to see in Christians that sets them apart. Now, that's a very high bar, and were we to think that it's something that we can somehow achieve, well then, I'd feel kind of hopeless already in this study, but that's not the point. The key word in that verse is what word? Fruit. Fruit. It is the natural outgrowth of a work of God in our life. It's the early part of the chapter where Paul says, we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised us. Now, this passage has both a future and a present tense aspect to it because salvation has a future and a present tense and a past tense. Many of us look back to that moment where we made a commitment to Jesus as our Savior and Lord The popular phrase is the one Jesus used, being born again. That's salvation. Maybe for some of you this is yet to happen because you're still exploring who Jesus is, and this can become your past at some point when you choose to give your life to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That part of salvation was being saved from the penalty of sin. One of the doctrinal terms for that is justification. We have been made right with God through Jesus Christ. There's a future aspect to our salvation when Jesus comes, and that is being saved from the presence of sin. The doctrinal term for that is glorification. But there is a present tense to salvation. Paul talks about those of us who are being saved. What does the gospel, what does grace and salvation mean for us we who are Christians right now. Well, now, in between being saved from the penalty of sin and in the future when we're saved from the presence of sin, we're being saved from the power of sin. The doctrinal word for that is sanctification. From the moment we come to Christ, we're on a journey of transformation that God wants to do. And the the longer I'm in Jesus, the less sin should hold power or sway over me. So I'm growing in sanctification. How does that righteousness that we look for by faith come? How does that type of life that we characterize by the fruit of the Spirit, that we can call a righteous life, how does that happen? It happens by living by the Spirit of God. 
So when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we're talking about the Spirit of God at work in our life. And when we're allowing Him to do that work of transformation, these fruit are the natural result of it. Now, let me take you first of all back to Galatians chapter 1 to explain what the book is about to you quickly. In the early church, there was a controversy that began to develop between the Hebrew Christians and the Gentile Christians. Hebrew Christians had a very Jewish idea of Christianity. They saw Christ as their Messiah, rightfully so, and most still practiced the Levitical law and the traditions of the Jewish people. So when the gospel hit the Gentiles, the way it looked in that culture was dramatically different, and a lot of Jews had a problem with that. And so what they started thinking was all these people all over the world that are becoming Christians, they don't know anything about Judaism. We have to fix that. So what they came up with was the idea that we have to turn everybody into Jewish converts first in order for them to become a Christian. The apostles were embroiled in that controversy in Jerusalem. Into that, Paul comes with some of his Gentile converts to tell the story to the apostles of how Christ and the gospel had reached the Gentile world. It was the most important event in the church up until that point because they affirmed that, in fact, the gospel that Paul was preaching is the gospel that they also preached. But There were those within the Jewish Christian community who couldn't abide by that, and they felt that Paul was a heretic for not first converting Gentiles to Judaism and then to Christ. They were called, or at least they are called today, the Judaizers. Eventually, they began to travel the very course that Paul had traveled in his missionary journeys in places like Galatia, and saying, well, our brother Paul gave you part of the truth. You have embraced the gospel, but you must also now embrace the law of God in the Old Testament. And what that means, and and this is the primary theme of the chapters, the early chapters in Galatians, what that means is all you Gentile men, no matter how old you are, have to get circumcised. Ouch! (laughs) This was no small thing. So circumcision became the symbol of the Gentiles coming under the Old Testament law of God. It was the first true heresy because it challenged the notion that we are saved only by the work of Christ, that we cannot earn salvation, that we cannot live righteously enough, and that we are saved by grace alone through faith. Now, that controversy was a recurring theme in most of Paul's epistles because it shows up everywhere. For instance, like I just quoted, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That whole apologetic Paul needed to say because of the influence of the Judaizers. So this is what Paul is addressing in Galatia because it's really started to take hold. Now, with that in mind, look with me at 
Galatians chapter 1, and I'm just going to read verses 6 and 7. In fact, I'm going to read from verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he gets right into it. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, this sets up the whole theme of the book of Galatians. Paul is staking his ground right now. He's saying, what the Judaizers are bringing to you is a completely different gospel. His first use of the word gospel means what we've put our hope in, what we've put our hope in for eternity and for this life. But then he says, in terms of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, it's really no gospel at all. And he tells the story of his own conversion, call into the apostleship, his visit to Jerusalem, as I had just described to you, the approval of the apostles of his message. And then he recounts the difficulty that some of the apostles, including Peter himself, in living up to this idea of grace. You remember Peter's story, right? God had to move miraculously in Peter to get him to understand that the gospel has come to the Gentiles. Remember the sheet and the meat just before he gets called into the home of Cornelius where he witnesses the coming of the Holy Spirit and has to admit that, yes, the gospel's for the Gentiles too. Peter even had to be brought kicking and screaming into the truth of the gospel. And then he went and he visited some of the Gentile believers and he lived out that freedom from the law. He participated. He, he ate pork. They had barbecue and, oh boy. <laughs> then when the Judaizers showed up to watch, Peter stepped away. See, the peer pressure of old religion is so strong. The peer pressure of old legalistic religion is so strong. And he pulls away. And then Paul makes this remarkable statement. Even Barnabas was drawn away. Barnabas, son of encouragement, the one who first saw in Paul the call of God and, and paved the way for Paul to be accepted and traveled with him. Even Barnabas was pulled away. This is how strong the pull into legalism is. Chapters 3 and 4, Paul does an apologetic, a theology about what the real gospel is and why it's salvation by grace alone through faith. Now, based on that, we come into chapter 5. We're just going to start reading chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So here is a key concept in what Paul's about to introduce. There are two choices that we have in terms of how we're going to live our lives, under whose authority, under what hope, what confidence. One leads to slavery, 
and the other leads to freedom. Let's read on. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will no longer be of value to you. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is now obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let's stop there and explore this a little bit. Paul is essentially laying out two spheres of authority and power under which we live and in which we have confidence. One is in the flesh, and the other is in the spirit. Now, the flesh is manifested in multiple ways. We live in a pluralistic society, right? So we look at all these different religions and all these different philosophies about humanity, humanism, atheism, even the American ideal is a philosophy of self-dependence. The American idea of liberty means I'm in charge of my own life. And that is where the idea of American liberty is different than the idea of Christian liberty. Because anything that has to do with me putting confidence in myself, anything, whether it's, whether it's religion or whether it's irreligion, whatever it is where you say it's human effort, human responsibility, by which I'm going to find the life that I'm looking for, all of that falls under the category of flesh because it's all about self-dependency, self-accomplishment. And in fact, that's exactly what religion is. So when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about our bodies physically. He's talking about our putting confidence in our effort. Does that make sense to you? So he sets this one sphere of operation, our own confidence in ourselves, against this sphere of living and operating under not our spirit, but the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of God. Let's read. Let's read on and talk about it. Verse 7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. This is very strong. Listen to this. The translations actually pat it down a little bit. Brothers and sisters, If I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. But as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. The Holy Spirit wrote that. I didn't say it. (laughs) Paul is so upset 
that these people are being drawn away. When he says you've been drawn away from Christ, he's talking about that present tense aspect of our salvation, that part in which we are to be depending on the Holy Spirit to bring about transformation and, and, and to bring about this sanctification. He's saying you, you're a part, you've fallen away from that back into thinking you can achieve this on your own. And he says it's such a different gospel. It's so important because it could keep you from the faith. He says it's so important. Here's how strongly I feel about it. Those people that want you to cut off the foreskin, I wish they'd just cut everything off. They'd go all the way and just cut everything off. Any questions about how I feel about this? That's how strong his opinion is. Now he's going to go and he's going to describe these two spheres, one including this whole idea of circumcision, but it's not the only representation of life in the flesh. Let's move on. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not let your freedom, uh, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And now we see these two lists. The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, we'll wait till the final week of the series to talk about this whole idea of keeping in step with the Spirit and living by the Spirit, which is the secret to bearing this fruit. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at each of these individual manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit and work them out together. But right now, let me work out these two spheres. Paul is constantly playing one of these spheres against the other. And here are some of the differences. Flesh versus spirit. Dependency on ourself or dependency on Christ. Dependency on law or grace. It's about circumcision or the cross. It's about works or faith. And ultimately, the end result is slavery or freedom. These are the themes that Paul constantly plays against each other. And here's the key. It's either or. You're either enslaving yourself to human responsibility or you're experiencing the freedom that comes from faith in Christ. Those are the only choices. 
those two spheres of power and influence have two different lists of outcomes in our lives, and I'm just going to put those up for you to look at. What an amazing thing. Let's start with the, the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. The first area is about sensuality, our, our physical desires holding us captive. Then he moves on, he talks about idolatry and witchcraft, which is misplaced worship. Then he talks about relational brokenness, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, dissension, ambition, factions, and envy. And then he talks about looking for satisfaction by complete indulgence, progressing to orgies, giving over to drunkenness and addictions. Paul is saying that ultimately, if we put our confidence in the flesh in any way, whether it's through religion or through irreligion, through circumcision or uncircumcision, they all end up here. They all end up here. And I offer the state of humanity today as proof of that supposition. That no matter where you start, this is where culture ends up. Now, we we all have our ideals about what culture could be, but if you look at human history, has that ever not existed? Even in places where people have had no influence of outside culture. Read The Lord of the Flies if you're interested. Why? Because there's a brokenness inside us that our own effort cannot fix. There's a moral brokenness in each of us that means our whole society is broken. But there is a different outcome that's possible. We don't have to be who we are. We can be transformed. That's what living in the gospel and in salvation can make possible. And that's the second list. It's interesting how they align for each other. There's a bit of a parallel between these lists. The top area is about giving into our darker desires and lusts. And instead, we have these other attitudes of selflessness that come from love and joy and peace. And then the issue of relational discord, hatred, jealousy, rage. Instead, relationally, we we manifest patience, kindness, and goodness. In terms of uh, factions and division, instead, we are faithful to one another. We are gentle with one another. And instead of orgies and drunkenness, we learn self-control. I think they're intentionally set side by side. There is one path that leads to moral slavery, separation from God, but then there's a a path by the Spirit of God in our life that leads to true freedom and transformation. Galatians is strong. I mean, Paul is coming at it hard. This is a heavyweight battle as far as he's concerned. Full contact epistle writing. In one sense, it's sobering. But here's what I want you to see. Look what we can become. You can be that. But you have to, first of all, stop thinking it's something you achieve, some checklist that you mark off, because that's just more of the flesh. Somehow you have to learn to live in the Spirit, to be in step with the Spirit, to let the Spirit do such a work in you that these changes just grow out of you. That's why they're called fruit. 
There's an interesting difference in these two lists. One is called the works of the flesh. You notice that? Carries that whole idea of effort. But then when he talks about what the Spirit produces in us, it's fruit. It's the Greek word karpos. It's singular. And so he's being very intentional here to say, whereas the works of the flesh are manifold, what I'm about to describe for you, I'm giving a lot of adjectives to it, but it's really only one fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is, not the fruits are. Now here's something else I want to suggest to you. Paul is saying, I believe, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. All the other virtues grow out of love. Love is the fruit. Didn't we read where he said the only thing that matters is faith expressed in love? And then he goes on and he says, you, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You see how he's working his way up to this? So he's basically saying, look at all the crap that comes out of living in the flesh. And here's what the Holy Spirit produces. Love and everything flows from that. From experiencing and living the love of God. The, the word, the Christian word for love is agape. There's actually four words for love most commonly used in the Greek language. In fact, C.S. Lewis has an excellent book called The Four Loves, which you may want to read. Uh, the first is storge. Storge is um, a companionship kind of love. It's love out of common experience, familiarity. I have love in that way for those that went on the Uganda mission trip with me. We, we shared an experience together. Second love is phileo love. That's brotherly love. Most often we, we think of it as family love. That's love by common origin, common roots. The third love is eros. Eros love is sensual based on our common need or desire. So you have storge, which is our common experience, phileo, which is our common origin, eros, which is our common need, passions, and desires. There's actually nothing wrong with eros within God's pattern for our life. But the word that the writers of the New Testament chose to describe God's love, Christian love, is uncommon altogether. In fact, it was uncommon in its day. Trying to capture this new kind of love that the gospel makes possible, they chose a word that was hardly ever used in the common language, and that's the word agape. Agape love means unconditional, undefeatable goodwill that always seeks the best for another no matter what he or she does. It's unconditional, it's undefeatable, and that's the love that allowed God to send Christ to us. And it's the love that if we embrace it in the Holy Spirit, we learn to experience that love, everything flows out of that. All the goodness, all the transformation that God wants to do. You see, this love is the thing that helps us understand that this sphere of the Spirit is the only hope that we have. 
because the sphere of human effort and flesh leads us down the path of condemnation and guilt and judgment. But God loved us so much, He provided a different path. We can step out from under the weight of that judgment and responsibility into unconditional and the undefeatable love of God. We get there. If we can embrace that, all the fruit, every manifestation of the fruit flows out of that. Does that make sense to you? So how do I get it? How can I get a love like that? Well, 1 John chapter 4, let's say this together. We love because God loved us first. I do want to read a little more of that passage for you as we now begin to turn our thoughts towards communion where we'll close. 1 John 4, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So in other words, this unconditional, undefeatable, agape love is only possible in Christ. But not only is it possible in Christ, it's one of the markers that all of us should have that we are in Christ. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us all His Spirit. So there's the tie that Paul makes too of the Spirit and love. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. And God lives in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence. There's so much more in this chapter, but you get the key, right? I can only love this way because I have embraced and experienced and understand the unconditional love of God. When I understand that no matter how dark I am, no matter how much I deserve because of my own failures, anything but God's acceptance and love, but He's loved me anyway, I have nothing left except to offer that to you. That's where it comes from, all right? That's why we have communion. It's to remind us that God demonstrated His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so let's end our service now by turning to the Lord's table together. Let's say a couple of other verses together as we prepare. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend. And then Romans 5.8, God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners.